Well, thank you for your worship this morning in song, and now we worship together in word. We will be taking the Lord's Supper uh, at the end of the service, and so uh, as you prepare for that and get your hearts ready for that as well, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, this morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 11. We are in the third week of our series on Advent, and I don't have to remind this crowd that Advent means the anticipation of the coming of Christ. And so we enter into this season anticipating that he will be with us and indwell in the form of a baby in a manger. And we celebrate it. It begins in the dark and it ends with the return of Christ and all that we celebrate this season. But today I want to focus on one aspect of character that our world has forgotten and maybe you have forgotten as well. It's the idea of joy. We live in a seemingly joyless society, or rather yet, we live in a society that celebrates joy in all the wrong places. Yet one of the chief characteristics of God's people that have been born again and saved by Christ is that we ought to be the most joyful people that exist. And we ought to portray that joy in the weary world that we encounter oftentimes. And the question that we ask ourselves this morning is simply this, how do we fight for joy in a world that celebrates joy in all the wrong ways? Christmas has a way of bringing out joy in many of us. But perhaps for some of you, maybe this Christmas season, you are fighting and you are contending for joy in your life. It's not lost on me that many of you this Christmas are celebrating without loved ones by your side for the first time. Or maybe these types of holidays, they bring about and elicit other emotions and feelings that, that you struggle with in your grief, and we want to be aware of that and cognizant of that. But the writer of Hebrews has a word for us to get our eyes and attention and our focus to restore our joy as he speaks to a group of weary believers who need an encouraging word from him. And so, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12, the text this morning says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, every preacher that stands in this pulpit will always point out the idea that the word therefore is there for a reason. And the reason that word therefore is there is because of what the writer does in the previous chapter. And he's reminding the reader in chapter 11 of all the, the men and the women who have gone before them to call upon and remember the works that they did in Christ. I think Hebrews chapter 11 is best summarized in verse 4 where he makes this simple statement, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What the writer is doing in that moment is he is asking us to remember the testimony of men like Abraham and Isaac and Noah and Moses and Rahab and all the ones that came before him. To remember, therefore, how they lived their life, though they are dead, they still speak to us today through their testimony. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of these witnesses, including in that group of witnesses, precious saints, even from this church, who have gone on and God has called to come home to be with them, that they are there and they are cheering for us and rooting for us. Live today. 
let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings to us, which entangles us. I want you to notice two things that the writer says in this moment. To lay aside, first and foremost, the sin that is in our lives. And that sin could manifest itself in a variety of ways. It could be outward behavior. It could be inward conditions of our hearts. Things like bitterness and jealousy and malice and and those types of things. But that sin could also be things that, that people see or that perhaps they haven't seen yet. But you know what that sin is. And the writer, God's word, says this morning to throw aside that sin. But notice what he also says here in this moment. Not just sin, but the things that would weigh us down. The things that would weigh us down. One writer said it this way, that he's not so much talking about wrong things in this moment, but the the weight that we are to shed could perhaps oftentimes be some of the very good things in our lives that we enjoy. And it could be a a good thing that is turned into a godlike thing, and it is something that weighs us down. It's like trying to wear a a backpack or a weighted vest around town all day long. You could do it, but it would certainly slow you down. And in particular, if you're running a race, but you're weighted down by weights, it's it's not a bad thing uh, in that sense, but it's something that would slow you down. In other words, to put it in the language of, of Travis and how we would understand this, if our mission is to see people far from God coming to know Christ, then the question that we ask ourselves according to this text is not just what sin exists within our lives that we must throw aside, but what are the other things that hinder us from being a people that live on mission with God? To be on mission, to understand that he has sent us out into this world and into our city and into the country and into the uttermost parts of the world to live on mission for him. It could be as simple as how we block off our time during the course of a week, how we schedule and and prioritize certain things so that we can be intentional about living on mission. The writer says, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That word race that exists, the writer would have had in mind this idea of a a Greco-Roman pentathlon. And that word race comes out of a Greek word called agon, A-G-O-N. And it's derivative of where we get the word agony. To agonize over in the midst of a race, to to do something that that is difficult. And back during the time when this book was written, these Greeks and Romans would gather together and they would run races of of great length and they would swim races of great length. And then they would get into a ring and they'd box each other at the end of all of this. And it was an agonizing and a cruel event that was very difficult. But it was the race that they ran. I noticed this week for the first time when you read those words, let us run with endurance. That the the Christian life, it's meant to be not a sprint, but it's meant to be a a marathon. A faithful perseverance of grit and determination, living out our faith in a way that others see it and that others will see Jesus in us. But notice he says the race that is set before us. Meaning this, we, we all run, if you will, the race to live on mission, but everybody's race in this room is going to look a little bit different. 
It'll look different than the person sitting next to you or behind you, in front of you. My race won't be your race and your race won't be my race. But the point is that God has put us in the race and we run it. We run it in such a way that we demonstrate endurance and we look to the long view with the long picture in mind. But in order to do that, we have to throw aside the things that get in our way. I had a friend in high school who was a competitive swimmer. And he would shave off every hair follicle on his body. And he, you never see a, a swimmer with a long beard and, and long hair. There's a reason why they, they wear caps on their heads. And some, even now, if you watch the Olympics recently, they'll put two caps on their heads. And I guess that makes them go faster. But they put aside everything that would slow them down in the midst of the race in order to compete for, for literally seconds on the clock to win the race with endurance. Some of us perhaps have hobbies or possessions that are fine in and of themselves, but, but maybe it's these very things that keep us from living on mission with God. And so the writer, speaking to a weary world, he says to remember those who have gone before you, but then I want you to notice what also he does in the midst of this and tells us to focus our gaze on Jesus. Look with me at verse 2 where he says, Therefore set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. One translation read it this way, He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. He's the completer. He's the one that when he starts a task, he always finishes it. He's the one, when he says he'll do something, he will always do it. And, and he has told us in his word that he who began a good work in you will finish it. He will bring it about on the day of completion. He will always finish what he starts. Unlike some of us men who get honeydews from our wives and we start a project and then we forget about it, we move on to something else. Jesus always finishes what he starts. And it's a promise about his character in this moment. That in the midst of living in a weary world, in a midst that living in a world that pursues joy in all the wrong places, what God is saying is to fix our gaze on Jesus. Because he is worthy of it. He is worthy of all of those things. He has promised us all of these things. He has committed to us and he has showed us the level of that commitment. And he has demonstrated the level of that commitment and the seriousness in which he speaks, he does. And he has shown that through the shedding of his blood on the cross. He has demonstrated that he is a man of his word. Demonstrating that he has invested his blood, his life to finish the work that he has started. He has done that. So therefore, in the midst of a weary world, focus your gaze on Jesus. But notice the verse continues. It's not just enough to focus on Jesus in that moment, but he describes it in this way, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I ask you this question rhetorically this morning. What was it that held Christ to the cross? What was it that allowed him to be able to endure the harshness of what it is that he endured? 
What was it that allowed him to stay up there? What, what could he obtain after this moment that he didn't already have? You see, even before that moment of despising the shame of the cross, he already had the approval of the Father, did he not? He wasn't working for his dad's affection. He, he wasn't doing it for the applause. He, he wasn't even doing it for the worship prior to that moment because as he comes down in Philippians 2 describes, he lowered himself and took the form of a servant, giving up his right to be worshipped 24-7 every second of every day. What was it that he gained? It wasn't the adoration of angels in that moment for he already had that. But rather what he didn't have in that moment The joy that was set before him is he didn't have you and he didn't have me. And what I mean by that is in our sin, in our broken fellowship and broken relationship with the Father, that someone, something had to atone for our sin. And so as he looks to the cross, the joy that was set before him, the reality of the gospel this morning is that you and I are wrapped up and caught up in that joy that was before him. That he was making a way to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself, all for his glory and certainly for our collective and individual good to make us right through him. The shedding of his blood and he sheds it. The joy that was set before him, he endures the harshness of the cross, despising the shame. That struck me this week in a peculiar way because in the cross, one of the most shameful and humiliating deaths that a person could endure, stripped naked of clothing, laid out for all to see, hung up on the cross, tortured for hours and hours upon end. And yet in that moment, Jesus looked past all the shame that came with the cross. And it didn't bother him. And it didn't affect him. And it didn't change his mission. He despised the shame. Why? Because Christ saw what would happen on the other side of that death. He saw the reward. He saw his rightful place back at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him. And he endured it for you and for me. And so in a weary world, how we rejoice is we focus not on what is happening now, but rather what will happen then. And we put our attention and our gaze on not what is the reality here now, but what is to come as we anticipate during this season. That Christ has come, Emmanuel, God with us. The author goes on in verse 3 and he says this, to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord and nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord disciplines 
in the midst of joy the ones that he loves. And we experience reproof. We experience correction. And when we do in our lives, it is a gentle reminder that God, in his infinite love, still loves us. Sons and daughters of the Lord God Most High. And he shows us that he cares for us oftentimes by allowing us to endure seasons of discipline. And I think one of the things that happens oftentimes in our own minds when we think about the concept of discipline is we think about it in the terms of punishment. And discipline and punishment are not often the same things. We can experience judgment even in, in some of those cases, but I think it's helpful to distinguish the difference between those. You see, in punishment and judgment, you are being paid back for the wrong that you have done. You're being paid back. Oftentimes when my small children will spill a cup at dinner or breakfast and they'll spill the cup over, we don't discipline them or, or punish them in such a way. They, they made a mistake and so we teach them how to correct and watch your hands and your elbows and don't lean across the table and maybe let's move the cup in a, in a better location. It's the gentle, if you will, discipline in those moments, teaching them how to correct the behavior. We wouldn't be very good moms and dads if we went around and casted judgment on them in those moments or punished them in those moments. In punishment and judgment, you are being paid back. Discipline is just simply a loving attempt to mold your character before God, to change you into being more like Christ. And so when the author of Hebrews says this, that in the, in the moment all discipline seems painful, but yet it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I don't know what season perhaps you find yourself in this morning, but maybe you're in a season of being disciplined. Maybe it's a season in which God is refining your character so that your character will in turn be more like his character. And he's making you into something today through whatever realities that you face, the harshness of the world, relational conflict or insecurity, whatever those moments are, can we not pause for a moment and but trust his sovereign hand in the midst of that and say, thank you, Lord, for making me into who I need to be that I wouldn't otherwise become apart from this season that exists within my life. You see, when you are enduring hard times, you must remember that God is molding your character in love and not punishing you in judgment. He has dealt with his judgment. He has finished his judgment and he completed it on the cross. And so we do not stand in Christ in condemnation before the Father. But rather we sit with him as heirs and, and co-laborers in Christ walking in and absorbing that mercy and that grace and remembering it and calling upon it all of our days. And so in the midst of a joyless world, one of the marks of the believer is that we would trust in God's sovereign hand in all things, that he is in control. He is in control of, of this world. He is in control of this pandemic and the one that's to come and the one after that and the one following that. 
He's in the midst of uncertainty in places like Ukraine and, and Russia. He's in the midst of, of uncertainty with civil unrest all throughout our world, all for varying different reasons. God is still on his throne and he is in control. And Jesus, who the joy set before him, is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he reigns right now over this universe. Do you believe that this morning? Do you trust in that this morning? Our Heavenly Father has done everything possible to reconcile us to his son, through, to him, through his son, Jesus. And the scripture just simply says that anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. That through faith that God raised him up as he said he did and through repentance of, of sin, anyone who calls upon him can and shall be saved. This morning, perhaps you are here and you have never called upon the name of the Lord. Can I invite you that during this moment that you too can know Jesus. You too can know our Heavenly Father through Jesus the way I do and the way that so many of you here in this room do. Would you call upon his name? Would you ask him to save you of your sins and redeem you and reconcile you to the Father? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your son, Jesus. With the cross before him, despising the shame, he endured the joy that was set before him, the joy of what is to come. So, Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to embody that spirit of the joy that is to come. Would you gently remind us during this Christmas season of why we celebrate and give gifts and why we gather around trees the following morning, why we celebrate at Christmas Eve services. And Father, would you remind us that all this is only ever about not just you coming, but also you dying and coming again. So Father, I pray that in this room, if anyone here today watching online does not know you, they would call upon your name and be saved. And Father, now as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would deal with our hearts and guard our hearts and our minds as we come before your table. We pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said.